0: Father, we believe that your word gives life, and every word of God is true, and so we come week after week, and in a different way, day by day, to your word, but Father, we confess that if not by your spirit, we will not understand what you say to us, nor when we love what you say to us. But by your Spirit, Father, we both understand and love the things that you say to us. By your grace, you give us the capacity to believe and obey and to do it with joy. Oh, Father, this is one of the gracious gifts that you give us as your children, a love for all communication to and from you, by your word and, and through prayer. We thank you, Father, for opening yourself to us and inviting us in, that we can know you and fellowship with you and glory in you. you no, know, Father, I pray that that would be the result of this time together today. Be glorified in it, Lord. We need your grace. I need your grace as your servant this morning. And so I plead for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen and amen. So this morning, as we prepare to launch into the sixth chapter of Romans, I think it would be good for us to kind of glance in the rearview mirror and kind of reflect on the journey that we have taken so far. You remember in the early parts of Romans, in chapter 1, it became evident that Paul wanted to teach us something about the gospel of God. The men and women in Rome to whom he was writing was apparently, these are people who have heard the gospel, they have embraced it fully, they were genuine believers, they were Christians indeed. And they were eager to grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the knowledge of His Word. And it specifically, they wanted to understand the gospel. And not the gospel in miniature, not merely believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But, Paul, teach us what's behind the curtain, so to speak. Take us to the inner workings of the gospel. We long to know. And so Paul's primary concern here is not that they needed to repent and believe the gospel. They had already repented and believed the gospel. But rather, as disciples of Jesus, he wanted them to gain a deeper, richer understanding of the inner workings of the gospel that they had already come to believe and embrace. Paul's teaching thus far has broken down into basically three questions. Number one... What is man's relationship with God before he embraces the gospel? The key word here is condemnation. The second question is how is man's relationship with God changed by the gospel? And the key word there is justification. And then the third question is how is man's relationship with with sin changed by the gospel? And the key word here is sanctification. And so looking backward, it's easy to see these three major themes in what Paul has written in Romans thus far. First, in chapters 1 through 3, we see his teaching on condemnation. Condemnation because all of us are sinners deserving the wrath of God. We are in Adam. Therefore, we have participated in Adam's sin and are due the very same that Adam was due. Next, in chapters 4 and 5, Paul shifts from the bad news to the promise of the great good news. Where Where there was only condemnation, now Paul reveals the promise of justification. That is, all who believe in Jesus are born again to a living hope. They are declared righteous in God's sight. So in other words, by the the uninfluenced, unfettered mercy of God, many who were hopelessly bound in condemnation are now granted justification. That is, they are declared righteous in the eyes of God in the court of heaven itself. They are declared righteous not on on the basis of good works, And not on the basis of good intentions, but by faith in the finished work of Jesus, accomplished by his righteous life and his atoning death for us. And so chapters 1 through 3, condemnation. Chapters 4 and 5, justification. And now today we begin the next section. Chapters 6 through 8. Don't you just want to skip over to... Chapter 8, the great 8. There's so much we have to learn before we get to 8. You're going to have to give me a couple of years. (laughs) So today we come to chapter 6 through 8, and Paul begins introducing us to the doctrine of sanctification. When Paul speaks of justification, he means that God declared us righteous in the court of heaven. As I said, When we speak, when he speaks of sanctification, on the other hand, it's not about God declaring us righteous. Now it's about God making us righteous. Let me say that again. God makes us righteous. As Christians, we did not make ourselves suitable and acceptable to God. God had to declare us righteous on the merits of Christ and then after we know Christ and we have been justified, yes, holiness is next, but we can't make ourselves holy. God must make us holy. And yes, he does it with our participation, but we'll learn about that in weeks to come. And so sanctification is all about holiness. It's all about likeness. It's all about us changing. Can I just, on a practical level, throw in here But that means that those elements in your life that you hate, those sins in your life that you seem to not be able to break free of, according to the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, you don't have to be enslaved by them. You don't have to be ensnared by them anymore. You can change. In fact, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will change. You will change. You will not be perfect this side of heaven, but you will change. And so, this passage, the passage that we'll begin studying today is Romans 6 1 through 7. And we're going to be talking about that for the entirety of this morning, and then we're going to come back to it again next week because there's so much here. It's not likely that we're going to cover all of these verses, but. Before we get started on the verses we are going to cover, let's stand together in honor of God's Word and read with me this text within its context, which means that we're going to read together Romans 6, 1 through 14. Romans 6, 1 through 14. And so here's what the Apostle Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign over your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought up from the dead to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. And you can be seated. The importance of this passage of Scripture, I think, can never be overstated for a Christian. It's so important for us. As believers, we, we love to talk and preach and sing about our new relationship with Christ. He became for us the Lamb of God who takes away all of our sin. He became for us our Redeemer who paid the price to rescue us from hell. He became for us our mediator and our sacrifice who reconciles sinners like me and you to God. John Newton Reflecting on this new relationship with Jesus when he wrote his hymn, whose lyrics famously exclaim, you know these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Now, I, I, want you, I want you to see what I'm doing here as I, as I say these words, okay? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now listen. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see something new has happened here. And we sing about it, and we preach it, and we pray through it, and we exhort one another and encourage one another with it, because it is so magnificent to us. Think about this. Newton, the former slave trader turned gospel preacher and theologian, was absolutely overwhelmed by the graciousness of God toward a wretched sinner like himself, and he was wretched. He was stunned by all the wonderful benefits of his new relationship with Jesus. In chapter 5 of Romans, the Apostle Paul affirms those divine benefits. He revealed to us that since we have been justified by faith, we have these incredible gifts. And and he gives us a short list in chapter 5. Peace with God. I mean, that's that's like the biggest thing in the universe for, for, for humans. Peace with God. Not, not a sense of peace, but no more war. And, and that's just verse one. And secondly, we have access to God through Jesus, by grace. And thirdly, we have the love of God lavishly poured out upon us by his spirit, verse five. We have been saved from the wrath of God through Jesus, verse 9. I mean, can it become more magnificent than this? All of this and much more is ours because of our new relationship with Jesus. To be sure, Paul has labored long over the believer's new relationship with God. It's a new relationship that Paul repeatedly refers to as the free gift, chapter 5. Which can only be received by, are you ready for this? What's the word you're thinking of now? It can only be received by faith, and that is true, but that's not what I was thinking. It can only be received by, are you ready? The ungodly. It can only be received by the ungodly. I think there are some of you who have come to Calvary Bible Church and you're thinking, all these holy people, all the, I mean, everybody looks perfect. Everybody's dressed nicely, right? I'm wearing a tie. Believe me, when I go home, this comes off. <laughs> I don't know why we wear ties as preachers. Maybe it makes us look more holy. But you know what? We are sinners all. And no one who comes to God believing that they are righteous and have earned their way into heaven, none of them will be received by him. God refers to himself as him who justifies the ungodly. So if you're here, tieless or with a tie, or whether you're in jeans or... Whatever it matters, it doesn't matter. But if you think that God must hate you because of your guilt and sin, you are the only kind of person that the gospel works for. And it is yours if you will have it. This is more than amazing. In a manner, a woman comes to God... God pours out upon them the glory of God's incomparable, magnanimous grace. Moreover, his free gift, this saving, reconciling, justifying grace, becomes a permanent feature of the new believer's status in the eyes of God, It's not something that he loans to you. It's not something that you borrow from him. It is now a part of you forever. Think about it. The very moment you believe in Jesus, everything changed. And you were changed because you were united with Christ. This is so critical to this text and to understanding the Bible and the gospel. What could be more glorious and encouraging and life-giving than realizing that you have become one with Christ? You are united with Christ. I mean, we could spend all morning thinking about the wonderful benefits we received, the very moment of salvation. In fact, in my prayer early on, I I, I read from Ephesians chapter 1, and I didn't even read the whole thing. Spurgeon called it the believer's checkbook because there is so much glorious value there. So many gifts from God. If we had time this morning, we could, we could go there and, and we could spend weeks and months. And you know how it works. The Apostle Paul waxes eloquent on how the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And what I want you to hear is, you don't have any of that apart from Christ Jesus. Or let me say it more specifically. You don't get any of that unless you are in him. Unless you are united with Christ. He wants us to talk not so much about our new relationship with Jesus, Although that's that's certainly true. What Paul is after here is not talking about our new relationship with Jesus, but about your new relationship with something else. Your new relationship with sin. You've heard me say before you say you have a new relationship with Jesus, that's wonderful. I want to know do you have a new relationship with sin? The Apostle Paul wants to know, do you have a new relationship with sin? Well, to give this message a little structure so that we can follow along together, I I have come up with a very brief outline. I told you a couple of weeks ago that the text that we were preaching through back then was structurally very, very difficult and theologically fairly easy to understand. This is the exact opposite. Uh, The structure is extremely simple. The theology is... He's going to challenge us in a wonderful way. And so here's the three points. Every sermon needs three points in a poem. We'll count the Spurgeon, I mean the, uh, the Newton thing as the, as the poem. But here are the three points. The opposition, verse 1. The rejection, verse 2, the first part of verse 2. And then thirdly, the explanation, verses 2 through 7, which we probably won't complete in the time allotted today. So number one, the opposition. Now, I'm sure you're aware that everywhere the apostle preached the gospel, there were Jewish antagonizers trying to step in and undermine the message. And we can assume that that was always the case for the apostle Paul. Paul had lots of experience debating these guys. And, and for good reason. I mean, he was, he was saying something that was unbelievable to them in a negative sense. I mean, they really couldn't believe it, namely that a crucified man was actually the promised Messiah. And that through faith alone in that promised Messiah, sinners could be proclaimed righteous. In fact, we know absolutely that this was their accusation or that they were accusing him. And let me tell you what the accusation was. The accusation was, that um, if grace covers everything, if grace covers all of your sin, I mean, isn't that going to lead people in a bad direction? Um, If the fact is that without regard to your sin, no matter how much you sin, grace will superabound more and more, won't that give license to sin? We know this is what they were accusing him of saying. It wasn't what he was saying, but it was what they were accusing him of saying. We know that back from uh, chapter 3, verse 8. And here's what Paul writes. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So this is not what Paul was teaching. But it was what he was being accused of. In today's theological vernacular, we might say that Paul is preaching antinomianism. Antinomian, I know it's a big word. It it, it simply means without law or without the law. Their thought was, without the law, people would be absolutely unrestrained in their sin. They would engage in all forms of sexual immorality and perversion. Believing all the while that somehow God would be glorified in that. After all, the more sin, the more glory to God. They will become drunkards and idolaters and adulterers and liars and thieves and they'll give free reign to every fleshly impulse just as the people did at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses was on the mountain with God, for which God judged them severely. When you teach where sin abounds, grace superabounds, aren't you suggesting that to sin more is to glorify God more? Isn't that where justification leads you, Paul? Isn't that what your people are going to be like, Paul? In other words, if in response to sinners' ungodliness, God pours out saving grace, why not just encourage people to recklessly abandon any sense of moral restraint and live like drunken pirates and pagans? I suspect part of the reason some people were confused was because of how high Paul elevated God's grace in his preaching. Beloved, I want you to know and I want you to see here that God's grace is so lavish, so free, so abundant, that to accurately describe it in biblical terms may open the door for people to falsely accuse you of antinomianism. Don't misunderstand me there is a real antinomianism and it kind of comes around about every 20 years or so it comes into the church it gets it gets a hearing for about 5 years it gets beaten down and then it comes back but I think part of the reason for that is grace really is free it's gloriously free it's more free than We can really comprehend. One author writes, it is at this point that the Apostle Paul moves perilously close to the edge of an abyss, one step to the side, and all that he has gained by what has been preceded could be lost. On the other hand, The danger of antinomianism was real back then and even today. Many people who call themselves Christians believe that they have eternal security with God in Christ because they prayed a prayer or because they walked down the center aisle in church and met with the pastor and said something and promised something or said they believed something. But there was never any change in their relationship with sin. You love it, this was a relevant issue in Paul's day, and it remains a relevant issue 20 centuries later. The question before us this morning is, can a person be justified and not be sanctified? Can one go through the narrow gate and then live his life on the broad way? Can someone be forgiven of their sins and still live in sin? Can someone be a good tree and bear rotten fruit consistently? I don't know about you, but I grew up in a tradition that taught that you can genuinely embrace Jesus as Savior. You can have a true relational relationship of salvation with Christ that will last forever and and yet they will continue living the same godless, sinful lifestyle they had before. They ever prayed the sinner's prayer, whatever that may be. In fact, when I was a young pastor, I remember being meeting with people for um, membership in the church, and I always asked them, and we still do this today, ask them to share their testimony. It was not at all uncommon to hear people say, well, I trusted in Jesus when I was six or eight years old, but I rededicated my life when I was 21. And I'll say, okay, so what does rededicate your life mean? Well, I was kind of overwhelmed by my sin, and, and I repented, and i have never been the same. And I would ask them, what was it like that living that you, you had, as you said, a, a Christian during that period of time, be, between your statement of faith or saying the, uh, the sinner's prayer and that rededication. What was that like? What, what was that time period of like? What were you like? And they'll say things like, um, well, you know, it, it, part of it was really hard. Uh, I rebelled against my parents. I... I went to college. I fell into the party scene with drinking and pornography and sexual sin of all kind. And, and you, were, you were a believer during that time. Oh, yes, yes, I have no doubt about that. Well, then what happened? Well, then I came under conviction and I repented. And I would say to you, um, you know, how do you respond to something like that? I, I think graciously of course but as we'll discover in this text over the next couple of weeks paul offers no biblical category for a person who truly has a relationship with jesus but does not have a new relationship with sin you've heard me say a hundred times from this pulpit that when the holy spirit comes into a sinful man or woman one of you is going to change And it's not going to be the Spirit. You will change. To live like your sin doesn't matter to God as a Christian is tantamount to saying, let us sin so that grace may abound. And so Paul has to address not only a believer's relationship with God, but also the believer's relationship with sin. And he sets up the discussion by taking his opponent's accusation and turning it into a question. And here's the question. Shall This is verse 1. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? This question moves us from the opposition, point 1, to the second point here, the rejection. This is Paul about to reject what was said. Should the believer indulge in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul's response there in uh, verse 1. May it never be. Meganoita. Not in a hundred years. Not in 10,000 years. Never. The word in the original language is meganoito or meganoita. MacArthur says, and this was the strongest idiom idiom of repudiation in the New Testament Greek language. It is used to convey a sense of outrage about what was being proposed. The very suggestion that sin could in any conceivable way please and glorify God was abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. What Paul is determined to teach us here is, is that there is more to the gospel than a promise of a new relationship with Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. When you come to know Jesus, you get a new relationship with everything, and especially your sin. You know this. You've seen people who, who are coming out of a godless background and would never darken the door of a church, read your Bible, I mean, they would laugh at you. And one day they come to Christ, right? And what happens? You don't have to say, no, you got to read your Bible or God's going to reject you. You know, they're like, hey, shouldn't I be reading the Bible? Shouldn't I go to church? Shouldn't I be with God's people? How can I get more? How can I get more? I know that was the case with my mom. I know it was the case with my dad, both of them who received Christ here at Calvary. And I know a bunch of you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes the first thing, the first thing, the first evidence that something has changed is they suddenly can't stop reading the Bible. And for the first time in their lives, They understand it and love it. This changes everything. In chapter 6, Paul makes it abundantly clear that in this new relationship with Christ, it brings about a new relationship with sin. And this brings us to the third and most vital point, and the one we're going to have to spend more time on next week, and that is the explanation. Verses 2 through 7. So after reputing the idea that Christians can go on sinning as they please after they have believed in Jesus Christ Paul says how can we who died to sin still live in it any longer how can that happen it doesn't make any sense of course the the logical question then is when did i die when did i die to sin And we're going to come back next week to talk about what it means to die to sin. But when did I die to sin? The short answer is simply this. If you belong to Jesus Christ, when he died, you died. When Jesus rose from the dead, when he rose, you were risen. Look at verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That newness of life is is how you live. It's, It's the way I said it a minute ago, is your life changes. He's not saying change yourself. No, 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 no. He's saying because of what God did in your heart, you will change. It's an indicative. It's not an imperative. In fact, there haven't been any imperatives yet. We too might walk in newness of life. Four, verse five, for if we have been united and that's a key word here. If you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, be, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And notice the certainty. You will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, in order to get our heads around this, we need to remember the doctrine of union with Christ. So as I was studying for this, I thought, you know, I, I, I think I preached on this a time or two. And so I got on my computer and I, I hit union with Christ in my sermon files. And I think six sermons popped up that I preached here on union with Christ. So I'm tempted not to say much because some of you are going to say, Pastor, you've told us this already. It's okay, it's no problem for me to (laughs) refresh your memory. But you probably remember our discussion in chapter 5, where we learn that the reason all humans are born into sin is because Adam sinned on our behalf in the Garden of Eden. Wasn't that the last thing we talked about? He was our representative head so that when he disobeyed God, when he sinned, his sin was imputed to everyone who was in Adam, which includes everyone who was a part of the human family, without exception. In the same way, Christ, the second Adam, obeyed the Father by living a perfect life and then dying a sinner's death And his perfect obedience was counted as our perfect obedience. Why? Because he was our representative head. By faith in him. And so we are counted. His death counts for us. And by the way, this is what the metaphor of baptism in this passage is all about. He says, verse 2. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus are baptized into his death? And there's been a lot of controversy over this. And, you know, is it water baptism? Is it, I mean, is this, people will say, theologians will say, is this a wet passage or a dry passage? Paul's not talking about the ordinance of Baptism. He's not talking about the act of being immersed in waters, an act of obedience to the Lord before a watching crowd at your church, as part of your church. Rather, Paul is using baptism as a metaphor of what happens to a person who is genuinely justified by faith. Jay Adams is helpful here on this point. He explains. If this chapter speaks of water baptism then we clearly then clearly that baptism is necessary for salvation because Paul writes of baptism into not water but into Christ verse 3 but it is plain he writes everywhere in the new testament that water baptism and salvation are linked only as reality and symbol. That is to say, baptism is but the outward symbol of an inward reality. Water baptism is not necessary for salvation, and never has been. It is a symbol that points to the reality that is invisible. It is a visible symbol that points to the invisible reality. Again, we should recall, in the Bible, the metaphor of baptism is clearly used to speak of a, a, a change in relationship. For example, in the case of the Israelites who followed Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians ten two that all were baptized into Moses. That's a surprise, isn't it? Didn't see that coming. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, Paul writes. In other words, they became united with Moses as never before, recognizing his leadership and their dependence upon him. This is the Apostle Paul. And so in other words, to be baptized into Jesus Christ is the same thing as being united with him therefore when he died you christian you died you know paul tells us elsewhere the only way out of slavery is death so jesus died and he took you with him and when he was raised he brought you with him so that you will walk in newness of life. You won't live the way you did before, not because you're commanded to live differently, though you are, but because when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, things change. Things change. This is what the Spirit does. This is the new way. What is sanctification? Well, when we speak of sanctification, we're talking about growing in holiness. The Greek word for holy is hagias, which when used as a verb is hagiazo, which means to make holy. Anytime you read in the New Testament any form of the word sanctify, by the way, this is where in Latin we get the word saint, one who is declared righteous, to be sanctified means to be holy or to be made holy, or in, in, we, we often refer to progressive sanctification, that you are being made holy by the Holy Spirit. And anytime you hear that word, sanctify, he's talking about holiness. You say, you mean like a monk, like um, wearing religious clothing and. You know, like a lot of people do, the Jews do, the Catholics do. Um, is that what we're talking about? No. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what holiness is. The more you become like Jesus, the more holy you become. And the way you think, and the way you live, and the way you interact with people, In Romans 6, Paul is showing us that there is a direct link between the holy life of true salvation and holiness in your practical experience. Holiness is as much a gift of God as redemption is because it is a work of the Spirit. When you get justification... You get the Holy Spirit, and when you get the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit starts his work, and you change. Salvation is not merely God declaring you righteous. Again, it is God making you righteous. Justification and sanctification are inextricably linked. You don't get one without the other. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Does that mean that when a person becomes a Christian, he'll never sin again? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what Paul is espousing here in this text. Look at, at in in verse one, look at the word continue. Shall we continue in sin? The word continue here is is really helpful. It's a word that is... In the Greek, it's epimeno. Epi is is an intensifying prefix. It means to remain in, or to abide, or to stay. And sometimes it's referred to as living permanently in a house or taking up residence there. Shall we go on living the same kind of life we lived before we trusted Jesus Christ? Shall we continue to maintain the old sinful habits of enslavement and idolatry as before? May it never be. May it never be, Meganoita. And this truth is revealed over and over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, I have a list of 14 scriptures that point directly to this. And let me just read them for you right now. Just kidding. We don't. We'll get there. Fourteen different scriptures that teach us that when a sinful man or woman receives salvation and is justified before God, the immediate evidence of that reality is that they suddenly abhor their sin and begin pursuing a life That is pleasing to the Lord. They just want to please Jesus. And the thing that hurts them and bothers them most is when they sin and dishonor Him. And yet they know that forgiveness is always available. Because where sin abounds, grace superabounds. I'll show you one of these scriptures. 1 John 3.9, Apostle John writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John is talking about the impossibility of a sinner being born again without experiencing significant change in their relationship with sin. You know what the difference between you and your, your unbelieving roommates in college or neighbors or friends at the office, you know, you know what the main difference should be between you and them? It's not what you look like. It's not what you wear necessarily. It's the holiness in your life. It's that there are just some things that you won't do, even if you get fired. It doesn't matter. You're not going to compromise that. Why? Because in your heart, you don't care about those other things. You don't have to worry about losing your job. The Lord has promised to take care of you. What you really want is just to be pleasing to him. And you're grieved when you don't please him. It's not about perfection. It's always about direction for the believer. You're always growing in grace. Never reaching perfection this side of heaven, to be sure. Not even close i'm far more i'm far more like the sinners that i minister to than i am jesus i'm far more i'm far less like jesus than i think i am there is so far to grow and you know at the same time that's not burdensome it's wonderful it's wonderful because along the way, the Lord himself draws me in. And even in his gracious discipline, it is for my good. It's for your good. It's for your good. The same God who justified you is sanctifying you if you are truly his. Let me just give you a little application here, and I mentioned this a little bit I suspect there are some college students who are listening to this, and maybe you're in a local school. And uh, whether it's a Christian school or not doesn't matter, because uh, both of them are full of sinners, and you're one of them. Well, perhaps you claim that you're a, a believer. You've even maybe told some people that you're a believer. And yet there is no, there's no significant difference between your unbelieving friend's behavior and yours. There's no significant difference between your your communication, your language. I know that's the way it was for me when I was a kid. I made a profession of faith early on, but I made a practice of sin. And I can tell you one way that I did. Uh, My closest friends and I, we tried to outdo each other in vile language. I mean, it was fun. It was hysterical. We loved it. We practiced. And yet the apostle John says those who belong to Christ do not practice sin. And the first thing that happened when I I repented, when I came to Christ, when I was born again, the first thing that happened was I wanted to get rid of that. Just wanted to get rid of that. It would still come out of my mouth once in a while. And I just wanted to get rid of it. How do I get rid of this? And God began very quickly taking that away. Taking it away. And I would say to you if you proclaim that you are a Christian and, and in your college dorm you, you do everything they do, you should be asking yourself some significant questions. Do you really know Him? Is the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your heart? You say, I'm pretty sure I'm a Christian. Listen, Whether you repent unto salvation or whether you repent unto 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 sanctification, it doesn't matter to me. But the the prescription is the same: repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. There's so much more than we could say here, and so many other illustrations but I suspect there are some here who are listening to my voice today. Maybe you're in this room or maybe you're down the hall listening and watching and wondering about all of this and you know you're ungodly. You're not even sure why you're here. But you're here and I can tell you why you're here because God brought you here. He's giving you an opportunity to hear. He loves you. He knows all of your sin. He knows all of your guilt, all the shame. He knows it all. He created you, and you are accountable to him. And by his grace, he is offered forgiveness. By his grace, he is offered reconciliation with God. You can be changed this very day. If you will repent and believe. And for believers, it's it's really wonderful because the way in the language it's written, it's not just repent and believe, it's keep on repenting and keep on believing. I love that. You know why I love that? Because even as a Christian, I still sin. And this is Jesus' invitation to believe and to receive, to repent, and believe. And so would you cry out to him today? Perhaps this is the very moment that you will admit that you are ungodly. And would you come to the Lord Jesus? I'm not saying you should walk down the center aisle. Frankly, we don't do that here. We're not asking you to make some kind of public statement. All I'm saying is, in your heart, would you, would you throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus? Would you bring to him all of your guilt and your shame and say, Lord, Jesus, I've rejected you every moment of my life. I've hated you. I don't know what's going on in my heart, but I'm strangely drawn to you. But the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. Will you forgive me? Will you make me the kind of person you want me to be? Will you accept me? Will you receive me? Won't you declare me righteous as you have promised in your word? I believe. And I am yours if you will have me. And I can tell you by the authority of the word of God, he will have you. Father, we thank you for this hour and for the truth that you bring to bear on our lives. Lord, I pray that this would not just roll off our backs as if it doesn't apply to any of us. Oh, Lord, I know it applies to me. I praise you for your word. I praise you for your spirit. I praise you for your grace that's greater than all my sin. No, Father, I pray for the unbelievers who are listening to this. Can I just speak to you for a second? You have now heard the word of the Lord. You have heard his invitation to repent and believe. Do not harden your heart. Believe and receive. Lord, I ask these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.